This is the Lotox Life Podcast. If all the birds could fly right now, as high as me somehow, they could see all the things I've been dreaming of. These wings of mine flutter inside, they shimmy and they glide, breaking forth, crack the shell from this clockwork light. Hello and welcome to the Lotox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host and founder of the Lotox Life, and I am thrilled to have you here with me today to kick off the next century of fabulous conversations and interviews with incredible world-leading specialists in their fields. It is such a joy to put on this podcast for you guys, and I want to say thank you, thank you, thank you for being here for the first 200 shows, and here is to the next 200 shows. Speaking of shows, of course, we have one today. And you'll remember that just before show number 200, I had Dr. Dale Bredesen back to discuss the latest research in the prevention, the detection, and the reversal of um, Alzheimer's disease. Um, And it was a fascinating chat. If you haven't listened to the two shows that I've done with Dale now, show number 199 and also 143, I think it was. Oh gosh, I hope I'm leading you down the right path there. But a quick Google, Low Tox Life Podcast, Dale Bredesen, will get you straight to both of the shows. Uh, you have to listen. Everyone needs to know what uh, is at play when it comes to the various uh, causes that are emerging of Alzheimer's. It's not just about a genetic predisposition. It is many environmental uh, and health factors as well. And the research is overwhelmingly showing us that in the very early stages before a diagnosis, there is plenty of potential to reverse cognitive decline. And of course, to improve patient outcomes if you are further along in the disease and you do have a diagnosis. So it's just amazing that we have this now. And I just wish everyone knew that Dr. Dale Bredesen existed. Uh, The new program, the book he's brought out, well worthwhile uh, grabbing yourself a copy as well, especially if you have identified cognitive decline in your family. I have had an experience with cognitive decline in my own family with my grandmother dying uh, of uh, Alzheimer's and dementia. And uh, I have experienced cognitive decline myself, which I've been able to reverse uh, due to mold illness and SIRS, more commonly known as uh, chronic inflammatory response syndrome to an environmental toxin, in this case, mold. Uh, And of course, different species of Mold produce different types of mycotoxins, which affect people in different ways. The research is starting to show us. But I knew something was up when I was having all sorts of strange neurological issues, twitches, tremors, uncontrollable muscle spasms. uh, And then, of course, starting to forget my words, uh, things like, oh, can you pass that... um, the, uh, can you pass me my, uh, the mobile phone, you know, (laughs) 41 year old woman should not be forgetting how to say, can you pass me my phone please? And so we really need to tune into these and we can't call, uh, things senior moments as we get into our fifties, sixties and seventies. This is cognitive decline. It's not a senior moment. And we can actually start to pinpoint 
what might be at play, whether it's severe nutrient deficiencies like a B12, for example, very important to the brain, uh, right through to exposures that we don't realize we're having. All of these things can be at play when we're experiencing any kind of cognitive issues. And it is much better for you and your family and friends and loved ones to detect this long before a diagnosis. So my heart goes out to anyone who has a cognitive uh, health issue in and, and diagnosis of Alzheimer's in their family. Uh, I highly recommend you get in touch with these two shows as your starting point, and of course Dale's two books um, to start you on your journey. So I wanted to recap for that show because I think it is an extremely important one for us all to listen to. And now I'm going to tell you who we've got today. So another health topic uh, as we round out this little series on important health topics. And I have Dr. Melina Roberts, uh, a naturopathic doctor, author of Building a Healthy Child and founder of Advanced Naturopathic Medical Center in Calgary, Canada. She's recognized as one of the top biological medicine practitioners in Northern America. And uh, that is in part due to the fact that she not only got her naturopathic doctor medical degree, but also studied uh, a two-year post-grad study in biological medicine uh, in Switzerland. And she talks a little bit about that and how seminal it was to how she practiced medicine. Uh, really fascinating stuff. I love biomed. I think it's a very interesting field and I think it can help us understand our bodies and why certain reactions happen between different parts of the body, different biochemistry pathways, etc. Super interesting. So t- in today's chat, we talk about digestive health uh, and we look at Uh, many different aspects of that, obviously the microbiome. Uh, We look at uh, a bit of a 101 refresher. So this is really great if you're always feeling a bit too silly to ask questions. We answer them today. We look at gut permeability. We look at the different types of foods, chemical, agricultural inputs, other environmental toxins that are impactful when it comes to gut lining integrity. And uh, we also look at uh, histamines, we look at um, stomach acid, digestive enzymes, and, and really just a great overall look at what we could be doing to do better by our guts and make sure we protect their health and uh, keep ourselves healthy, given the many links between the gut and the brain, uh, for example, and the immune system as well. So I hope you enjoyed today's show. I just wanted to thank all of our new Lotox club members. Uh, It's wonderful having you guys all there. We've been looking at the topic of immunity this month in the club and in the members dashboard, you receive a wonderful big ebook every single month on that topic of the month. And uh, you also have a whole bunch of other options such as 50% off all of our courses, uh, excluding the Lotox Method program and Thrive. Uh, but we, uh, Lotox Life, have nine courses, so there's plenty to choose from depending on the goals you have. And I just wanted to give you a shout out to our new members and welcome any members who are thinking of joining us this weekend, go do it. It is so inexpensive. And the reason I've done that is because I just want a beautiful big community in there celebrating Lotox living together and supporting each other. And the beautiful thing about a paid membership is that the Facebook group is so supportive and positive. It just 
excludes all of the trolls. They're just not there and people can have respectful, safe conversations, ask advice, and it's just wonderful to see it take shape. So come join the Lotox Club. You can do that uh, via the lotoxlife.com website. Hit the Explore tab and join the club as the very first option. And it's $49 Australian per year. So, uh, and of course, all of those benefits. So come join us. I look forward to seeing you there. Uh, enjoy this discussion with uh, Dr. Melina Roberts. I really uh, loved what she had to say. And uh, here's to happy, healthy guts. You know, when we get that right, a lot of other things fall into place as well. So I look forward to hearing how you enjoyed this interview and I'll see you on the other side. Hello, Melina. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited about this uh, chat. It was wonderful to come across your work recently. Uh, I know you're passionate about children's health uh, quite specifically, but uh, your training and practice obviously extends beyond just children. Um, not that children should ever have a just in front of them, my correction there. Uh, but uh, today we're going to be talking about digestive health. And I think it is a topic that confuses people so much. And often you go down so many rabbit holes, protocols, attempts when you know something's wrong and you end up trying to correct it by going into a completely different type of program and then things get worse and then you're not sure whether it's getting worse because it's like an, a Herxheimer reaction or if this actually just doesn't suit you. And so many people are, I think, more confused the more literate we become. And so I really love inviting uh, doctors, specifically naturopathic doctors, because I think your understanding uh, from the holistic perspective uh, as health professionals is always so valuable in this space uh, to help us actually practically move forward less confused. And that's what we're going to do today, right? <laughs> Sounds great. Yeah. So what led you to become a naturopathic doctor rather than a more conventional physician? So for me, it was personal experience. So when I was a kid, I had really bad allergies and eczema and I would basically, my skin was always had a rash on it and I would itch my skin until it would bleed. And yeah, just, and I thought that just had to be normal and it was something I was just going to have to learn to live with. And when I was about 13, a family friend said to my parents, you know, you should try taking her to see a naturopathic doctor. Um, and back then we had no idea what a naturopathic doctor was. We didn't know what they did, if they could help me. Um, I had a we similar were... experience with chronic tonsillitis. A friend oh, okay. recommended it when I became antibiotic resistant. She's like, maybe you should check out a naturopath because here it's a separate type of training. It's not a combined yeah, yeah. degree as it is for you guys and Americans. Um, and, uh, and I was like, what's that? So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. So then what happened when you went yes. to... Yeah, so we saw this doctor and um, we went in with an open mind and um, we followed everything he told us to do. And um, really within a short period of time, all of my allergies cleared up and my skin cleared up. And um, to me, it was like magic because I had no idea exactly how it all worked. Um, but that was like my first, my first little inkling that, you know, that the body had this ability to be able to heal itself. And that was also um, why I, I wanted to become a doctor because I wanted to have that kind of influence on my patients. I wanted, um, I wanted 
to help people in a way where they didn't need to be suffering unnecessarily. So, so yeah, personal experience is definitely what got me on the road to becoming an naturopathic doctor. Yeah. And, and so obviously at some point digestive health fascination happened as an area for you to hone into, uh, how did that come into play? So, um, so as my journey kind of progressed, um, my, in my second year at the naturopathic college, my dad was actually diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And I started to do a ton of research into natural therapies in order to treat cancer. And I was amazed by how much information was actually out there and in scientific journals. And I was coming across lots of important information, but I just needed more time. And unfortunately, I wasn't given more time because my dad passed away uh, nine short months later. I'm so um, sorry. Yeah, it was pretty tough on me because the dad was really one of the most important people in my life. So it, it hit me really hard. Um, but it's, it, that research really started me on my journey to um, focusing my practice on treating cancer and trying to figure out what was going wrong in a person's system and how to get them better. And that became the focus of my practice um, once I graduated. And I was just, you know, always just searching for answers. And um, one of the things that I, I learned on my journey was how central digestive health was to, um, to healing the body. And that can be from any chronic disease or any health issue. If you focus on healing the gut, then the whole body would really just help to repair itself. So that was... Um, that's why I got my fascination in terms of gut health. Mm. What an incredible legacy your dad has been able to leave through you. Oh, thank you. You know, <laughs> because true. that yeah. him passing away may not have led you to this exact. Yeah. Spe- and I think you know, that too. Specialization. Yeah, that I wouldn't, incredible. that I probably wouldn't be focused on cancer care if I didn't go through the experience that I went through with my dad for sure. Well, I am very sad for you that your dad's no longer here. I know what it's like to have a dad who is central to your world. Uh, mine sure is. And, um, and I think what you're now doing in, uh, in your practice is just no doubt helping so many. Uh, and so when it comes to uh, our studies, often we can kind of stop and we think, okay, we're done and I just want to practice you didn't. You decided you wanted to add a couple more feathers to your bow. Talk to me about how you ended up in Switzerland. So um, when I first graduated, I'd heard that there was this clinic that was having a lot of success in treating cancer. And that was really intriguing to me. And I wanted to know exactly what they were doing and how they were having such great success. And I joined this practice. And when I was uh, really just practicing there, I saw that they were basically doing um, everything that they were doing there was nothing that I had learned in school. Oh, wow. Like what <laughs> yeah, kind of so, things did you see? Yeah, like-, like they were doing all these different kind of testing and different therapies. And yeah, I, I really hadn't seen anything like it. And what I'd realized that it was something called European biological medicine. And I found out that um, he had done his training with um, a doctor from Switzerland named Dr. Thomas Rao. 
and um, he did his training at the Paracelsus Clinic. So I was like, okay, I've got to go learn all of this, and I I need to um, learn learn this thing called biological medicine, and and that's really what um, that's really why I did it. Um, and yeah, biological medicine is is this. It, it's really in line with naturopathic medicine, except there's lots of different testing tools. So the concept behind biological medicine, um, there's really two main things that it's focused on. One is terrain. So in order for our cells to be healthy, they need a healthy environment to live in. So the analogy I love to use is like, if you have a plant that's unhealthy, you don't do anything to manipulate the plant, you change the soil that that plant is in, and that plant will regain its health. And that's exactly what we do with our cells. As soon as we change up the terrain that our cells are living in, then we can help those cells to regain health. So that's one concept. And the other concept is something called self-regulation or adaptation or self-healing mechanisms. And so every organ system cell in our body has these self-regulating systems. And these self-regulating systems, uh, the analogy I like to use with, to explain this one is that um, if it's hot outside, then our body will sweat. And if it's cold, then we will shiver. And this is our body adapting to stressors in its environment. And that's how every cell and every system and every tissue of our body is doing this adaptation all the time. And what can happen is that we can have different things, I call them six stressors on the body, that can affect how the body self-regulates. So those six stressors are food sensitivities, immune challenges, heavy metals, environmental toxins, everything emotional, and everything physical. And so what we do is we identify the stressors, we remove those stressors, and then we allow the body to be able to self-regulate and self-heal on its own. So that's the concept of biological medicine. And then we have different ways that we test that and different therapies that we do based on what's showing up in your system. Mm. And isn't it interesting how much more prevalent biological medicine and that approach is becoming? I think of the conversation I had with Dr. Dale Bredesen just last month about those stresses that seem to be bringing on Alzheimer's disease. So it's not just an unfortunate thing that happens. Oh, well, you know, there goes grandma. It's like, oh, grandma was living in a moldy building for 20 years. And oh, grandma actually, you know, her husband passed away and she didn't have the tools to psychologically heal from that. And all of these kinds of stresses that impact uh, the presentation of disease. And I think the more we start to realise that that equilibrium and that flexibility of our system to be able to self-regulate is, uh, is intrinsic to our overall health, the more we're going to be able to tune into, oh, I'm off balance and I need to remove that stressor. I need to be able to identify those stresses faster. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, it's just a... Um, I think that, you know, you'll see it in naturopathic medicine, you'll see it in functional medicine and biological medicine, but biological medicine just has a specific system in order to see how to address that, right? But I think that, you know, other, other ways um, of looking at the body um, are definitely in line with the biological medicine approach. Mm. And in terms of, 
I'd like to start sort of diving into our human microbiome and the gut. Um, In terms of the gut, it seems like hardly anyone has got a gut that's in good shape these days. Are there any groups out there, any types of people who do have great gut health that we can sort of go, okay, what's happening with those guys that they're all good? And that can be a bit of a blueprint for us to see what we need to do. Yeah, it's, it's a good question because I would say that um, most people who are coming into my practice um, don't have good, they don't have good That's gut That's probably health. why they've come to see you. Yeah, and yeah. exactly, is why they end up in my practice. But uh-huh. I also think it has to do with our diet and what we're taking in into our body and what we think is normal and healthy and, and even when we think we're eating really clean, we're not necessarily eating really clean because there's so many toxins that are coming into our systems. Um, you know, anything that's processed is going to have a whole bunch of environmental toxins and chemicals in our body. Even if we think we're eating healthy with eating vegetables, or ve- most of our vegetables have been sprayed with pesticides and herbicides and insecticides. So... Um, I find that the people who have the best gut are those people who are extremely diligent and cautious about what they eat and what they put into their body. And, um, and they are, um, uh, they take that very seriously and they're very meticulous about it. And they're not, um, they're not well, like I sometimes have that, right. Because the thing is, is that even that like one cheat of, um, like one sheet of cake, you know, some people are like, I just had that one piece of, I just needed to have that cake because it was, it was someone's my birthday. birthday. Or yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I just wanted that one piece of cake, but sometimes that just that one piece of cake can throw off that gut flora um, for a period of time and cause a bunch of inflammation in the system. So, so yeah, I think that the people who have the best gut health are the ones who are are really consistent with their diet and really meticulous about making sure that they they uh, avoid those um environmental toxins and um and that are coming into your system and choosing the right foods and making sure there's no processed foods and staying away from major inflammatory foods. So, um, can I ask um is the reason one teeny tiny piece of cake can you know throw someone off into inflammation for hours maybe days uh is that because the baseline health of their microbiome is already way off because it seems to me like you know i I know my husband has incredible digestive health it's like damn you you know just so good and for me that then seems to um, make him more flexible if there is a one-off situation or, you know, you do have fish and chips with your friends by the beach that day in the summer because, you know, that was the moment and that's okay because of all the amazing work I usually do. Uh, is it like the more we're thrown off course in the first place due to the bigger things like antibiotics and uh, non-organic foods for decades, etc., is that why we can then be tipped over the edge so easily? by something as small as that one serve of food. Well, I think, I think that actually brings us to um, the subject of my book, which is building a healthy child. And 
Um, what I had discovered when I was doing my research into um, building a healthy child um, is that we build the foundation of our microbiome, so that that flora within our gut between birth and age three. So how we um, so so there's a few different factors that come into play. So was it a vaginal delivery or a C-section? Because those are two different two different microbiomes. Um, and then were they breastfed for how long? And then how were the foods introduced in their diet? And if that foundation is strong, then yes, you can you can have definitely stronger gut health later in life, and things don't throw you off as much. You don't have to um, walk on such a tight um, a tightrope, right? As you as you follow that diet, and you know you can stray off a little without it throwing your system off. For sure, I think that there's there's. Um, I usually say um, it's probably because you built a solid foundation right at the beginning. Gotcha. Yeah. And uh, and only because so many women feel uh, thrown into a narrative of guilt and shame. And, oh, my gosh, it's obviously my fault because I had to have that emergency C-section. I had to have an emergency C. My mum yeah, did so too. Yeah, so I don't say it in judgment at yeah, all. Yeah, <laughs> no, of course not. But uh, to give uh, those women and their children a practical couple of tips, uh, if that is how it is, we've got to accept it, right? It happened and it probably helped save you or and your baby's life. So how do we make up for that? original short so so if we know this initially what the the best thing to do is um if you like if you do have a c-section so in that moment um if you can take a swab of the mom's um, vaginal canal and put that into baby's mouth then we can actually build that gut right from the beginning so we can make that correction right away um, if we're talking about years later, then then that's about um, then then we're going to have to. It takes just a bit more work, right? So we got to clean up the diet. Then we got to heal up the lining of the digestive tract, and um, and then we got to do the balancing of that microbiome. So it is possible, and um, yeah, I, I don't say that to be judgmental in any way. Um, and it's the same same with it's the same with breastfeeding, right? I know that there's many women who want to but aren't able to, but um, but what we do know is that the breastfed babies do have a better gut flora. But of course that also, you know, there's also that, you know, even with a breastfed baby, if mom's eating a terrible diet, then, um, then it's not necessarily the best, um, uh, the, you know, the most advantageous in terms of, in terms of that baby's health. So mom has to clean up diet too. Mm, so many factors. <laughs> yes, so yeah. when it comes to intestinal permeability, just for anyone who's quite late to the gut conversation and only just starting to explore this now, I'm always um, mindful that, you know, this could be someone's day one of being curious. Can we have a bit of a 101 on how our guts become leaky or this permeability starts to occur or grow? Yeah. So we have um, cells that line the digestive tract and what holds those cells together are something called tight junctions. So they're these proteins that hold these cells together. 
And what can happen is that um, if we have a lot of inflammation in the gut, or if we have high toxic loads in the gut, then we can get damage to those tight junctions. So what happens is that then we have a space between those cells and then food that's not completely digested ends up in the bloodstream and that activates a whole immune response because the immune system is saying this is something foreign this should not be here so it elicits this huge immune reaction as it tries to attack these undigested foods that shouldn't be there so that's what happens in terms of that intestinal permeability. And you know, this happening over a long period of time can lead to a host of different health issues. Mm, huge. And, and so from what you were saying before, it seems like the chemical agricultural inputs, environmental toxins uh, can play a huge part. What about the foods themselves, the person's uh, genetics maybe, or uh, other issues they've got going on which might produce allergies, intolerances, et cetera? Um, how, uh, can, how long can those go undetected? Like you must have seen patients over the years where you think, my gosh, how was dairy or, you know, even a type of vegetable like eggplants or nightshades, not a, a red flag for you way earlier. Your gut's not in good shape at all. Um, I'm keen to kind of hear how in clinic this sort of starts to present and you start to diagnose people, investigate. Yeah, so I would say that most people to some extent have this leaky gut or hyperpermeability picture. And it's just to what extent it is in a system. And, um, and even if people um, don't necessarily experience any symptoms, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're not causing damage to their gut. Because that's usually, you know, I usually take people off of those major inflammatory foods right away. And, and people will say to me, no, I don't think I have a problem with dairy. Dairy is not a problem for me. And, um, and even if they think it's not a problem for them, they still need to be removing it. And it's, it's a pretty interesting phenomenon that you need to take those, you need to take those inflammatory foods away um, in order for us to even start to do the healing. And often what happens is that because we are constantly eating those inflammatory foods, so we eat them for breakfast and lunch and day after day and after day, we're eating those inflammatory foods. Um, our system is just so inflamed that, that we're not having specific reactions to those foods. But when we start to calm down that inflammation, then we start to see those reactions. So sometimes people can say, um, you know, you took me off those foods and now that I've tried to have it again, I'm having a reaction to it. Um, you caused me to now be sensitive to gluten. And, and it's like, no, no, you always had that, but now we can actually see the reaction because we've calmed down that inflammation and now your body can, can react more appropriately. Gotcha. And this reminds me of a fascinating conversation I actually had with a, a grass-fed butcher many years ago when I was looking into my food system and 
and uh, I had tried to go plant-based many, many years ago when I discovered factory farming and a live export, et cetera, and I was horrified. But the diet didn't suit me at all and I, um, I was just not well. And I thought, okay, if I have to be an omnivore because it looks like I do better that way, what kind of meat can I eat? And so I would talk to everybody and ask all these questions. And I spoke to this guy at the um, farmer's market and he was amazing. He had actually been working at the abattoir where uh, they did the first introduction of grain feeding these uh, cattle um, back in the late 60s in Australia. I don't know when it happened in uh, Canada or the US. Uh, and he said, we were starting to see cows that we were butchering uh, with abscesses in their liver and tumours and cancers. And we had never seen this before in the abattoir. Uh, you know, he was a young guy at the time. And he then started talking to the people who were changing the diets of the, the animals. And they realised that introducing it as a night and day, now they're eating this kind of scenario didn't work. And so they actually started introducing grains in tiny amounts very early on in a calf's life. And over time, it seemed to, they were still not as healthy as the grass-fed, pasture-raised, pasture-finished animals, but they were less bad. And, <laughs> you know, it just sounds like human health as well. Like when did we settle on less bad instead of actually healthy, right? And it's not until they took the grains away from these adult uh, animals that they then started to see a better health picture. Um, and slow introduction means you kind of never realise how good you could be feeling, right? So it just makes me think of the human diet, the modern human diet, and we kind of never realise how good we could be feeling. Yeah, and I think that that happens all the time, right? People think that their bodies are deteriorating and breaking down because this is the aging process. And you know how often I hear people say, oh yeah, I'm experiencing, you know, these aches and pains or these stomach pains or, you know, I'm gaining some weight and they're like, you know, but I know that that's just like part of the aging process. And I'm like, no, if you're, yeah, like it's understanding that your, your body has so much more potential than that. Same with those cows. I think that, you know, when I was learning about grass-fed cows, um, I, I was learning about that microbiome in the cows and that when you um, feed them the, when you feed them the grains, then they actually start to grow the wrong bacteria in their gut. And then they're absorbing um, the wrong nutrients into their system. So the meat, the actual composition of the meat is quite different than the grass-fed meat, which would be higher in your omega-3s and you'd have higher mineral balance and, um, and it's getting like less toxic load into um, those, the, the fat cells. And so it's, it's, yeah, very interesting to me. Um, yeah. When you learn, you know, this is the, the, the diet that a cow should be having is that grass fed, grass finished, and that's going to make it the healthiest, healthiest meat and, um, and mo more humane and better for the environment and um, and then healthier for us to be consuming as humans.
Yeah. So um, I'm sorry to take us down that tangent, but it's just such an interesting parallel with our own dietary uh, acceptance of what we think is normal, culturally right. And, um, and then actually digging a bit deeper and removing, as you say, some of those inflammatory foods. You mentioned dairy, uh, and obviously none of these are universally inflammatory. There are some people who seem to thrive on various different things, depending. I find some of the, the studies around ancestry, et cetera, really quite interesting. But as a general rule, when we're trying to diagnose, treat and heal people, what is that sweep of inflammatory foods that you remove to start doing the work? So, um, so my starting point is to remove gluten, um, cow's dairy. And I think that our dairy in North America is definitely more inflammatory than yours, I believe, because we are the A, we have the A1 casein, which is quite inflammatory. And I think that you guys have better access to the A2 casein. We do. which is not inflammatory, um, which we are slowly starting to get in North America, but um, really like most of what we are consuming in North America is the A1. So I want people off of that because that I think is universally inflammatory. (laughs) Um, And then the other one that is inflammatory is sugar. So those are the three things we start off with removing. Um, The other one that I do like people to be Uh, more aware of, um, though it's still challenging to remove, is those industrial oils. So um, those industrial oils have been shown to be damaging um, to our gut lining, causes inflammation. And the other challenge with those industrial oils is that they actually become part of our cell membranes. So then the integrity of our cell membranes actually starts to decrease as we have more of those um, industrial oils in the diet. So uh, yeah, those are the four things I I like people to at least start reading labels and start to um, start to remove from the diet. So those, those may, I call them major inflammatory foods. Mm -hmm. And I want to dig down a little bit into what you just shared there, because that's not something I had heard before. Uh, And I've done a fair bit of research into cell membrane health, having experienced and still recovering from SIRS, uh, chronic inflammatory response syndrome for people who uh, are new to the low tox community and haven't heard my story. Um, and cell membrane health is hugely important and leaky cells are one of the biggest issues that no one seems to be talking about yet in, uh, in terms of really helping us get healthy, hold on to nutrients well, absorb nutrients that we need. So how does a seed oil change our cell membranes? Yeah, so those, um, so most, so some of those seed oils, it's not that, um, a seed oil, it's just that most of those seed oils are industrial oils, right? So they have been um, changed, heated, um, chemically altered, and, um, and typically a lot of them are coming from GMO sources. So they are really not healthy oils for us to be consuming. 
So it's not that, because um, sometimes they get classed as like omega-6s and all omega-6s are inflammatory. And, and I wouldn't say it's all inflammatory. It's just that those industrial oils are inflammatory. Yeah, there's a huge difference between a little bit of cold-pressed sunflower from a nice little organic farm down the road to like a huge thing, vat of vegetable oil that some fries are going to go into in a cafe yeah. for the fifth time. <laughs> yeah it's a very yeah, exactly. different thing. and that's and that's been heated over mm. and over again at high temperatures and that that's changing it and so we have those you know those deep fried foods and and now the challenge is is that the body is now incorporating those into the cell membranes and the challenge is is that a lot of us with our like i'm i would say north american diet but maybe western diet um is is consuming a large amount of those industrial oils. And so that's changing the composition of those cell membranes. And when we have a high amount of um, our cell membranes made of these industrial oils, it actually changes the permeability of those cell membranes. So yeah, we want those cell membranes to be you know, an ideal permeability where things can move in and out easily, but not too easily in and not too easily out, right? So, yeah. So again, just like with the gut integrity, gut wall integrity, it's about cell wall integrity as well. Yeah, yeah mm. exactly. And Very so we want, so you want it, yeah. So you want a combination of even when you say healthy fats, what makes up those cell membranes can be some of those um, plant fats, but it also needs to be made up of those animal fats. So when we say healthy fats, we actually need a, a combination of both in order to have a good permeability of that cell membrane. So that, that plays, plays a big role. And it's, it's so interesting, isn't it? When you think about what, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm writing a book on um, uh, ways of uh, growing and, and raising foods that give more back to the planet than they take at the moment. So it's been a really fascinating, uh, fascinating research project. And what seems to be done by farmers who just get it, no matter what they're farming, whether it be a vegetable or a pig, um, they ask what the animal or what the plant or what the soil needs in order to thrive. That is their, their centered question. And uh, if we want healthy cells, then we should be asking, what does this cell need to thrive? Uh, so it could be right down to like a little grain of soil up to a human cell or a digestive wall or anything. What are the tools this thing needs to thrive? Yeah, I know I was, I was speaking at a conference and I was talking about the microbiome, but the speaker right before me, he was talking about soil health. And I just found like his talk on soil was so interesting and in how he was talking about the diversity of the microbes and what minerals you need in order to have healthy soils, in order to grow healthy plants. And I just saw such a parallel to him talking about healthy soils and our microbiome and what we need in order to, to build a healthy microbiome. And when we build a healthy microbiome, then we actually start to build healthy cells in our body. So um, the connection between soil and the human body, I think, is, is very much intertwined. Absolutely. And it makes sense. We're part of nature. Yeah, At the end of the exactly. day, we're all related. And <laughs> none of us can have health 
for the planet unless all of us are individually healthy. That's, yes, that's exactly. how we achieve planetary health. So, um, so let's talk about this this gut now in a bit more detail and some of the things that can go into repairing damage. Uh, damage can obviously come from undetected allergies and intolerances. It can come from antibiotics. It could come from the very start of our lives with a C-section where we weren't know, in the know about vaginal swabs, et cetera, yet, uh, and, uh, and a whole host of other things. So when the gut is damaged, we've re removed some of those immediate stresses and inflammatory foods. Uh, one of the questions I always get is, um, can you please ask, you know, the next person you, you talk to about gut health, how to navigate probiotics? Because uh, so many people think more is more and, oh, we've, you know, you see the 50 billion and you think, oh, that must be the good one. And we're not looking at strains and we have actually no knowledge of our own bodies through a good stool test as to what's going on. How do we start to effectively navigate probiotics as a potential uh, you know, companion in this road to better gut health? Um, so I am super biased when it comes to probiotics because they are a ton of probiotics out there, but I would say there's very few that are really effective. Um, and I'd say that, so what probiotics are is they are the healthy bacteria. So we're trying to reestablish a good, healthy bacterial terrain within the digestive tract by getting people onto probiotics. Now, in terms of probiotics, there's two things that you have to be um, looking at. One is you want to be looking at um, the manufacturer. So you want to make sure it's a high quality manufacturer. And, and then the other thing you want to be looking at, and this is sometimes challenging for the average person, um, because it's not about what's on the label and it's not how many hundred billion um, of those microbes, but what you actually want to know from that manufacturer is where those microbes come from. Because it's not just about the name of that microbe, it's where they're actually from. Because a lot of companies are pulling those microbes from the gut of cows. And a cow's microbiome, so their gut flora, is very different from a human microflora. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I am a strong believer in consuming human microflora because that's what your body recognizes, can assimilate really well, and it helps to build that foundation of gut flora. So you have to find out from that manufacturer, you typically need to call them because they won't, it doesn't say it on the label. There's no, nothing that says it on the label that it's human microflora. So you need to find out where do these microbes come from? And often even I have patients call manufacturers and often even the person that they're talking to on the phone can't answer that question. So there, there's one major type of, um, of probiotic. So I really love those human microflora. And the how other, do they get them from the humans? Yeah. So they're just culturing them from uh -huh. healthy, yeah, from healthy gut flora. Gotcha. So, and, yeah, so that sounds okay. I think, I think it's just, I think it's, it's, I know it sounds gross, but it's also, um, but I think it's really just happening in a Petri dish, right? They're just yeah, like con culturing them and growing them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and the uh, other type, sorry. No, no, gonna, no, you, no, you go for it. Keep going. <laughs> there's another type 
um, that that I also like, which are spores. So those are they are um, they're from the soil, and what they do is, and they've been around for centuries, and they are part of every living um, organism, and they set up an environment in the gut that helps that healthy bacteria to flourish. So, so those are the two types of probiotics that I really like is the human microflora and the spores. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and is that like, uh, I've seen a couple of fantastic doctors recommend the Megaspore Biotic. Yeah. Yeah. That exactly. brand. That's, yeah. That's the one I love. Yeah. That's a bit of a gold standard out there. It seems from you guys. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great yeah. one. Yeah. Uh, and can you name drop any brands of humid ones just to save us a whole bunch of phone calls? What do you prefer <laughs> to not brand called? So, well, I think that, um, on a podcast, I probably can, but when mm-hmm. I'm sitting on a stage, I can't. Yes. I get you. <laughs> Yeah, so, please let's um, hear from our sponsors, <laughs> not those brands. <laughs> um, so the one, the one, I actually um, have one made in my clinic for my patients. But oh, amazing! The one that, but the one that you can get um, on basically online would be one by Genestra. Okay, the, fantastic brand. Yeah. Appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. Um, okay, and so taking probiotics. Then my next question around probiotics is. Uh, can you take too much of something if you're already overbalanced in a particular type of strain? So um, it is possible, um, but it doesn't happen too often. So sometimes when I'm, when I have patients start on it, um, what can happen is that if they are taking too much, then they might get some loose stools or diarrhea and usually what's happening is that your body's having a bit of a die off. So it is removing some of those healthy strains of bacteria. I mean, sorry, those unhealthy strains of bacteria that are in the gut. And, and that's, what's, that's what's happening. So it's not that you're necessarily taking too much of the good guys. It's that your body is kind of changing over um, and getting rid of some of those unhealthy ones. And that's why you may have um, a digestive disturbance. And if you want to kind of, um, I'm always like, if it's how quickly you want to get to point from point A to point B. So sometimes there's a little bit of discomfort in getting from point A to point B. So sometimes what we just need to do is we just need to decrease the dose. So we makes it more comfortable and more sustainable for a patient to get through. Um, that and and not feel uncomfortable and not have to experience diarrhea or looser stools Mm -hmm. and in your uh, experience in working with patients are you a fan of single strain therapeutic types of probiotics like um you know ruteri for a particular type of something or like there's because there's some interesting research starting to come out right yeah, and I think that um, yeah, if we have some research that backs it, and if we do like basically some stool sampling, and we've seen that people are missing out on certain ones, so yeah, I'm I'm a fan of doing those single strains if they are necessary. Um, yeah, and yeah, and what they've shown is they've shown some pretty cool research in terms of the um, the gut brain microbiome access. Um, so we, we became aware of the gut brain access, but what we didn't realize until, I don't know, a few years ago is that the micro 
biome actually plays a big role in terms of that gut brain access. And, and then there's specific strains that they've studied that have shown to be um, more beneficial in terms of mental health and brain function. So, so that research is actually really cool. And a lot of that is single strains. Amazing. Um, yeah, I, I agree. And in terms of uh, getting the co- like recolonization happening, so you know, ideally, you don't want to have to be on supplements your entire life. What are some of the strategies? Is it about introducing prebiotic foods, resistant starch, that we can actually start to ensure that those good guys stick around? Yeah. So. The yeah, in terms of rebuilding that microbiome, um, starting point is those probiotics. But in order to maintain that, um, there are things like prebiotics, and I I prefer just to get that from food. I know that there's supplements out there, but your prebiotics are food for the healthy bacteria. So it helps the healthy bacteria to repopulate, and those um, prebiotics are really just from fibers from our vegetables. So if we can incorporate more vegetables into our diet, then we will be helping to feed some of those healthy guys. Uh, so that's that's a contributing factor. Another one would be incorporating those natural probiotics into the diet. So these are, um, these are your fermented foods. So those are your... Um, kimchi and sauerkraut and your kombucha. Um, So those are some some great ways that you could be incorporating those in. And you don't have to be having them in large amounts, but having those, a little bit of that on a daily basis would definitely help to maintain um, a good gut flora um, so that you're not so dependent on supplements. It's it's so much wonderful so much better to be doing it through food. Agree. And, uh, and I'm so glad you mentioned you don't have to have a lot. I remember I would buy kombucha from a woman at a farmer's market like 12, 13, 14 years ago before it was a thing that was kind of lining the grocery store shelves. And she had a, a label on the front and it was very, very specifically said 60 mils maximum per day. Uh, and you know, it's this more is more Western approach, isn't it? I'm like, Oh, if it's good for me, I should have truckloads of it. No, because you can throw your gut out. Yeah. I've had patients say that to me. They're like, Oh, I've been drinking that kombucha and you know, it's making me feel worse. And I said, well, how much are you having? They're like, Oh, it's, I'm having like a bottle a day because they're drinking that like pop. Yeah. Right. Swapping and their it, soft drink. For, yeah, um, yeah, so yeah. they're drinking. And I'm like, oh, you don't even need a pop. You just need, uh, you don't need that whole bottle. You need about one or two ounces of that kombucha a day. That bottle should last you like a week. Mm. So, and they're like, oh, that'll actually save me a lot of money. <laughs> right? <laughs> so I'm like, okay. Yeah, so you need there a we lot go. less. And yes. And yeah, and for sure it can be disrupting the gut and, and not supportive. So, so yeah. And some people, you know, like their systems are so sensitive that they're just needing like a teaspoon a day. Mm. (laughs) Well, and that goes for prebiotics as well, right? Some people who have just not had any fiber for decades and then you start eating your lentils and you start chucking in some artichokes and things and it can really throw you sideways digestively so again yeah exactly start small and grow as you feel comfortable 
Yeah. Yeah. And that's also the concept of learning to listen to your body. Right. I think that a lot of people haven't been paying attention to their body and, um, and don't listen to those cues and you got to listen to those, those, um, those cues that your body is talking to you. Right. So that little bit of discomfort, that change in bowel movement, that bloating, that burping, those are all signs that you're not properly digesting and metabolizing your food and you're getting some inflammation in your gut. Mm -hmm. And obviously pre and probiotics aren't the only thing going on with digestive health. And I wanted to ask you about stomach acid and digestive enzyme function, uh, because uh, I feel like people understand these aspects even less. And there are so many supplements, you know, that tout, like take this and it'll improve your digestion. But uh, if you're not clued into what it actually looks like symptomatically to have issues with your stomach acid, either too much, too little, um, same with digestive enzyme function, we can then end up having supplements harm us uh, instead of help us. Uh, and we can end up buying things that we don't even need, which I think is so rife these days. We just see a label, it says better digestion. You're like, yeah, I want that. And so you buy it and it's not the right thing. So how do we know that we might need to be doing some enzyme or stomach acid work? So I, I want to talk a little bit about those um, stomach acids, because I think that um, a lot of people are told, like they'll get some heartburn and they're told, oh, you must have too much stomach acid. And um, and then they're put onto a medication that will decrease those stomach acids in the body. And I think it's really important for us to realize um, how important stomach acid is that, that we need that stomach acid in order to help us properly digest and break down our foods and our proteins. And we need, um, we also, the other role that that acid plays is that it is, um, killing off any sort of infectious agents that may be coming in um, so it won't, won't make it past that stomach. So, so those are important roles. Now, in a lot of cases, it's not because we have too much stomach acid that we're experiencing that reflux. It's often because we actually have, don't have enough acid. We're not producing enough of that acid. And because what we have is we have that sphincter between the esophagus and the stomach. And that sphincter is actually sensitive to the stomach acids. So if we have low amounts of stomach acid, then the tone of that sphincter is not strong. So that actually means we have inadequate acid in the stomach if we're getting some of that reflux in a lot of cases. So um, being aware of that is really important. Now, in a lot of cases, why we're not producing enough stomach acids and digestive enzymes is often because we are eating when our bodies are more in a, a sympathetic dominant state. So I'm going to explain that a bit more is that we have um, a nervous system that runs in the background called our autonomic nervous system. 
So there's two parts of that nervous system. There's your stress state. So there's your run away from a tiger part of your nervous system. And then there's your rest, digest, and repair. And your body can only be in one gear at a time. It can either be in your sympathetic state or your parasympathetic state. So when we eat, we have to shift our body into our parasympathetic state. And when our body's in our parasympathetic state, that's when we will start to produce digestive enzymes, produce the um, mucus in order to help break down our foods. And we start to produce the acids that will help to, again, break down our foods. It's when our digestive tract is getting prepared for eating. And if we haven't shifted our system into parasympathetic, then often that's when we are going to have a lot of symptoms that show that our body is not able to effectively break down the foods we're eating. So that's when you'll get some of those reflux. We get some um, gas, we get some indigestion, we get some bloating, um, inflammation. Those are all just signs that the body's not um, properly breaking down the foods we're eating and that we are getting inflammation in our gut. Mm. And (laughs) I'm just picturing people in a big city eating their sushi roll while they walk like 20 miles an hour down the street. And And so uh, many people do right? People are eating on the go, right? We are Mm, living or eating while working. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And Mm. so that's where we talk about like mindful eating, right? Where you actually are sitting and you're thinking about your food and you're thinking about how good it tastes and in really enjoying your food as you're eating it, as opposed to kind of just stuffing food in your mouth while you're doing some work. Mm, 100%. Yes, shifting it and making sure you chew your food. And yeah, it's, it's, um, yeah, the more we can do that, that kind of mindful eating, the more we can shift our body uh, better into that parasympathetic state instead of being stuck in sympathetic. Mm. And a lot of people like to replace a meal every now and then with, or maybe every day with a smoothie. Um, and still loaded with good stuff and it's all organic and everything, but obviously we're not chewing at that point. Uh, and, and so can we, like, I, I love a good smoothie. I really do enjoy them. Uh, and I find that it works for me in an intermittent fasting protocol where I sort of start my day with that at about 11 and then have a really good lunch a couple of hours later. Um, but I try to chew it and I always try to just sit on the balcony and have a quiet moment with the smoothie instead of like trying to churn through emails while drinking the smoothie. Um, yeah, that, would you say so that important. that's okay? Yeah, for sure. And, and I do like the smoothies because the smoothies will still have some of the fiber in it from um, a lot of those vegetables. So you'll still get the benefits of those fibers and um yeah so even though you're not chewing even though you're just drinking um yeah as long as you kind of shift your body into that more relaxing state then um then your body will will do the work of properly digesting 
Okay, good. Thank you for the tick, Doc. That's good. <laughs> just wanted to make sure I wasn't doing the wrong thing. Um, okay, and so uh, I, I wouldn't mind looking at obesity as well in the uh, context of gut health uh, and higher BMIs, uh, especially because right now what is unraveling is a huge amount of research that seems to be mounting more clearly by the day to show that with our current viral challenge uh, with COVID-19, that the groups of people who are obese, uh, have higher BMIs, uh, diabetes, et cetera, are really not having great health outcomes or having a much much more serious presentation of the disease. And it seems to me that while this might not be part of the mainstream conversation with government officials around the world helping our populations get healthier, you and I don't have to wait a day to share these messages and help people in this context. So what does the health of our gut and the kinds of little guys that are down there have to do with obesity and higher body mass index? Yeah, it's pretty interesting when you look at the research of microbiome and, um, and obesity because what they actually show is that um, well, these are in mice studies, but um, I think it translates into humans as well, is that the, the microbiome of an, uh, the microbiome of someone who's obese or have a high BMI have actually a different, um, a different microbiome, so different microbes in their gut than someone who is more on the lean side. So, so that definitely plays a role. And so it's trying to, um, you know, figure out that diet that will help to feed the, um, the ones that are going to help to make you more lean and, um, and not feed the ones that are making you more obese. And so this can often be a challenge with weight loss, that it's that microbiome. Um, One of the uh, foods that I find can be um, a challenging one is grains. Because grains, as soon as we eat them, they turn to sugars. And the bacteria and the fungus within our digestive tract love to feed on those sugars. So I find that one of the foods that um, really need to be decreased or eliminated in the diet is grains because of how much, um, how much they're affecting that microbiome, but they're also affecting things like as soon as we're eating them, they're turning to sugars, which is increasing our blood sugars, which um, contributes to that insulin resistant picture. So, um, so as best we can, um, cutting out grains will help to make sure that we get a better, um, balance of that gut flora. Mm. And in doing so, we obviously don't want to cut out complex carbs, prebiotic foods and fiber. And so it's really just about making sure we redefine what foods we're, um, we're able to get those things from, right? Yeah, because, and you can get those yeah. from your vegetables, right? Mm, your, mm. your your green leafy vegetables. So I like the green leafy vegetables. I love the the healthy fats, right? So making sure that those those are incorporated into the diet. Mm, um, fantastic. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, love it. And uh, and so in terms of um, 
getting a poop test. So uh, uh, like a lot of people just go to the doctor and we think, you know, I've, I've had a poop test and I don't have parasites and I'm done with my poop test. But there is, as with everything, uh, and especially with uh, naturopathic uh, um, resources, biomedical resources, there are some incredible advances that have been made in terms of being able to analyse our stool and actually see what's going on in the gut. What are you a fan of uh, in, in that realm of testing so that we can actually get some really interesting data to actually work with, get to know ourselves better? Yeah, and, it, and it's really interesting because um, this has uh, really evolved and changed over the years. And um, the more we start to research the microbiome, um, now we see some companies kind of catching up with it and now being able to say exactly which microbes are are in the gut and and how they could be affecting your health. Um, the one I use in my practice, uh, and I'm sure there's other ones out there, but the one I use is GI Map, and the GI Map is a great great one. It's you know it's the a stool, a, a stool sample, and it's looking at um, the and I'm sure I'm going to, that it looks, it looks, it's very different than other ones. It's looking at the DNA of those bacteria. Um, and so we get um, a really good picture, uh, lists off all of the different microbes in the gut, and you can figure out which ones are, you know, too high and which ones we need to start getting rid of and which ones um, you have in good supply and um, in the diversity of that, that gut flora. Because what we know about the microbiome is that it really has to have um, two important factors. One, it has to have a, um, a good balance of what we call healthy bacteria and unhealthy bacteria. They need to be in a nice symbiotic balance. And then the other thing that defines a good, healthy microbiome is, is a large amount of diversity. So you need to be, have a, a diverse number of those um, microbes in the gut. Um, and I know that, yeah, when I, like I've done, I've done those stool tests on myself and, um, and I, I've found that, you know, you get those, I have, you know, the, it tells you kind of how much diversity you have. And, you know, I have, I have average amount of diversity and I'm like, I don't want average. I want above <laughs> average. Right. So then you're trying to figure out, okay, what else can I be doing to help yeah. increase the diversity of that gut flora? Right. Mm. And sometimes it's, I think it's probably because, you know, we just tend to eat the same foods over and over again, um, mm. even if they are high quality foods, mm. but you're not getting, I don't know, however many foods you're supposed to be getting. <laughs> yeah. And it really Different does varieties. come, it just, it's such a great illustration, something like a stool test and what it tells you of um, reflecting back on your diet and thinking, is it really that diverse though? You know, and yeah, really, yeah. really making sure that we are moving through lots of different beautiful plants of lots of different uh, vibrant colors throughout the week. Yeah, exactly. Not always just buying the same four vegetables and eating them over and over again. Um, which of course is better than no vegetables, but still like diversity in our shopping basket tends to reflect better diversity. In your in gut flora. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and so why do so many people in their thirties and forties start to develop, uh, you know, it could be inflammation really, and just another tipping point, but histamine issues tend to just sort of explode onto the scene as this big issue and you eat a meal and you get big palpitations or you uh, break out in hives. 
what is up with that? <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely starting to see um, a lot of like what we call histamine intolerance in my practice. And um, the histamine intolerance can be due to a number of factors. One can be that we are actually consuming too many histamine foods in our diet. Um, those histamine foods, um, there's a big list, but they tend to be more of those fermented foods that we talked about, but consuming too much of them. Um, and, uh, and really anything that's been yeah, fermented for periods of time. So that can be one reason that we're consuming too much. And then we also have um, within the lining of our digestive tract, we have enzymes that help to break down the histamines. So we have a couple of them, and I'm trying to remember them. There's the, um, there's the diamine oxidase, and then there's also um, the HNMT. Um, enzymes and those enzymes within the gut help to break down those histamines. And if we are, if they're damaged or we don't have enough of those enzymes, then that can be a contributing factor to um, having, to not being able to manage histamines when they're in our system. So what that comes down to is that we need to be healing up the lining of our digestive tract in order to get those enzymes to be functioning optimally the way they should be. So again, it comes down to healing the gut. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And get that uh, under control. do you recommend a bit of a pullback on fermented foods, leftovers, tinned fish, things like that, that are the real... Um, high histamine foods for a little while while you do that repair work? I do. Yeah. So I'll, I'll typically give patients a, a list of those high histamine foods. I don't say to, that they need to eliminate them, but if we could just try to reduce them and re realize where they're actually coming from, and then you um, decrease those while you work on healing up the gut. Um, Cause that can just play a big role and, and we don't want to add, add more insult to injury. Right? Yeah. So you want to be um, helping the body along, but um, yeah, we definitely see a lot of those, those histamine reactions, but what's, what's awesome is that, you know, like you start doing the work and, and, you know, people don't have to suffer for, you know, years and years with, um, because what am I, a lot of my patients are they you know they're breaking out in rashes mm. all the time just I know I did from when I was foods. really moldy I would yeah. just it would be the tiniest thing if I ate leftovers a day old I would yeah. break out and it just drove me nuts and I had to go extremely low histamine I did for about six months actually yeah. but yeah. I was extremely inflamed I was yeah. a, it was an inflammation cascade of epic proportion <laughs> um, living in a very water damaged apartment um, but you know like now a slow cooked tomato based uh, dish you know as a part of dinner is no issue whatsoever and I couldn't have eaten a slow cooked anything three years ago so uh, there yeah, is so hope you, you... people if this is you <laughs> Um, yeah, do as the doctor the, says. Did the work. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. Um, so, speaking of doing the work, I have a couple more questions as we round out our time together. One is how to choose a protocol uh, in the minefield of different ways that people are promising us we can heal our guts. What have you seen to be some of the most effective strategies? But also, um, 
some uh, honesty and disclosure, if you will, about how sometimes there'll be that person that that doesn't work for and how do we then help people on that individual basis when what normally should work doesn't? Yeah, so my starting point is removing those, what I call those major inflammatory foods. Um, so I say we got to put out the fire. That's our starting point. So to me, those are uh, the gluten, the cow's dairy, the sugar, and those are removed. And then once those are removed, then we can start healing up the lining of the digestive tract. And uh, we can do that with uh, different supplements from um, L-glutamine to N-acetyl uh, glycine to, we call it NAG, um, or there's also uh, uh, the beta-glucan. And, and sometimes even like uh, things like bone broth and collagen can work quite well to heal up the lining of the digestive tract. So there's kind of different, lots of different tactics in order to do so. And, but that, that lining of the digestive tract needs to be healed. And it does take some time, even though the turnover of that, that the cells that line in the digestive tract, I believe is every like three to four days, which, you know, um, but every time it has that turnover, if we have set up the right environment, it's getting stronger and stronger, but still can take some time in order to heal that up. So, um, and is that because of like a cell with the process? Yeah. Is that because of like cell memory as well? Like they just get so used to replicating themselves a certain way that that's why it takes some time. It's not just this magical four days. Oh, we're going to do it differently now. Yeah, I think that it well, it takes some time to to set up that right healing environment because what what can happen is that even the the information that those cells are getting um, can still be muffled because we can still have a ton of toxic loads in what is called the micro environment, so the area around our cells. So the signal that they're getting still isn't completely clear. So I think it takes some time in order to clean up that whole micro environment. So yeah, I think there can be some cell, there can be some um, memory in there, but it's also because it's not getting, it's still not getting proper signaling. So yeah, it's yeah healing up that gut lining, then working on balancing that microbiome. Um, the other thing I work on with patients is I work on. Um, opening up the organs of detoxification, so making sure that they're working well so that the body can clean itself up. So that's the, the liver, the gallbladder, the kidneys, um, making sure uh, the lymphatic system, making sure that those systems are working well in order to flush toxic loads out of the system. So that cleans up that, that communication between our cells that we're talking about so that so that we can get that proper cell communication so that we can start rebuilding properly. Um, so those are, those are the tactics. And what I find is that um, I don't tend to run food sensitivity tests um, initially um, when I first start seeing patients, but what we find with some, so that works for, you know, like I'm going to say like 80% of our patients that that tactic just works really well. But then we do have those patients that, you know, they followed that. They're very, really faithful with following the plan, following the diet, and we're still not seeing improvements. And that's typically a point where I will run a food sensitivity testing. 
And when we run that food sensitivity testing, it does give me a bit more insight into foods that they may be reacting to that, you know, we thought were healthy, but aren't actually working well for a patient. You know, I had a patient um, who was, you know, we're following the plan, doing all of the work and, uh, and then he, but he still wasn't getting better. He, he was, you know, he was feeling better, but still, still not completely better. Right. Yeah. And, and I was like, there's something else going on in your system. And we ran that food sensitivity testing. And what's interesting is what showed up for him is like in the red was um, green tea and cucumbers, which was so surprising to me. And he looked at that list and he goes, oh my gosh, I have that every day. And so I was, yeah. So then we eliminated those foods and, and, you know, like, and he just felt so much better after that. So, so that's where the test further testing can just help to refine because I would never have guessed that those were the problems. Yeah. In his diet, even if I looked, if he wrote everything out and I looked through it, I would never have thought that those would be the problems. So, so that's where, that's where, you know, with those, with those tough cases, that's where I do some further testing to figure out what else is going on in this body. Right. Amazing. And at what point on a, a protocol, like eliminating the major inflammation food, inflammation causing foods, and then starting to heal the gut with uh, supplements and, and targeted foods. Um, at what point do you go, okay, this isn't working. This is when we need to do the test. Is it like three weeks in, is it three months in? When do you kind of get that inkling that you need to deep dive? Um, I usually do it at around probably that three month mark and, and that three month mark of, and that's with them telling me, you know, I've been really consistent with the diet. I've been really consistent with the supplements following your plan faithfully. And, you know, I'm still having some of these issues. And so, as opposed to some people who are like, oh, well, I kind of had a lot, you know, <laughs> kind of following the diet. Yeah. And but then, then it was the Christmas off. party. Yeah, and then, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so then, so then, those, then I'm like, oh, well, it still could be that those inflammatory foods It still can be those creeping in. So, um, yeah, that's, that's typically the stage where I'll, I'll say, okay, let's dive in and do some extra testing. Good to know. And then one last question is if you could be addressing the uh, 50,000 or so people who will be listening to this show over the next month and tell them, okay, I want everybody to just focus in on these two things for a month and see how much better you might feel from those little changes. What would you love for people to do more of for their gut health on a daily basis? Um, it's a tough okay, choice. So I know, I know there's a, a lot choice. to choose from. So, so, <laughs> but for your audience, and this is what I'd say with my patients too, is that you actually have to have some awareness of what you're looking for, because the best way for us to know if your gut health, um, if your um, microbiome is better balanced is by assessing your stools. So our stools um, should be, you know, we should be having bowel movements um, at least once a day, one to three times a day, that they should be formed, that they should be brown, that they should be a, a, a consistent consistency. So what I would suggest for your listeners in your audience is to 
be assessing as I make, I'm going to make some suggestions, but as you're looking at that, you want to make sure that you are um, looking at how your bowel movements are changing. Mm-hmm. We're so, getting to know our poop, peeps. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> it's it's going to give me, you know, going to give me and you so much information about what's going on inside of you. And I think that that's, that's a lost art of people not looking at their poop. <laughs> so, so that's, that's how our, our assessment tool. Mm. And, and it makes sense. Like we're obsessed with our baby's poop and we yeah. look at every single one and we talk about it as a couple, as a family, we talk about it with a doctor and then we stop talking about poop and it feels like we shouldn't. Yeah, I know when patients come into my office and they're like, yeah, I've been experiencing diarrhea. And I'm like, well, how long have you? And they're like, this has been going on for a year. Oh, wow. It's a year and you're just coming in to see me now, right? Mm. Like, Well, that shows you how taboo it is. People just kind of don't want to really deal with it. Yeah, exactly. So they're not looking at their poo. So I want want to encourage the your audience to be looking at their poo. And um, so I'd say the two things you want to be incorporating in, I would say is to, to eat more vegetables um, because you're going to get some good fibers in there in order to help to um, feed those healthy gut flora. And the other thing I would say is to try to increase your healthy fats. Because I find that most people actually aren't eating enough fats in their diet. And one of my favorite healthy fats to eat is avocados. So if we could increase those healthy fats, have more vegetables in the diet, I think we're going to see that microbiome improve. But you guys can let me know. Yeah, sounds like a plan. Thank you so much for joining us today. I feel like that was a hyper-practical um, discussion with so many simple, simple things that we can look for, that we can chat to our practitioners about and that we can do. Uh, I want to direct everybody to Melina's fantastic new book. Can you give us a little shout out about that and how people can find it? The Building a Healthy Child. Yeah. So my book is called Building a Healthy Child. And what it does is it teaches parents how to build their gut health properly right from the beginning by the way we introduce foods to them. So um, Building a Healthy Child, you can get it at Amazon or any place that they sell books. Mm, Fantastic. Uh, And um, we look forward to seeing how uh, it is received out there in the world. I know a lot of low toxes are going to be very interested in this, especially people who are just bringing kids into the world right now. What an incredible tool to have to get it right from the get-go instead of have all the issues that we've had to talk about today and fix. I know, later (laughs) Yeah, exactly. If we can prevent that, we're going to change the next generation. That's right. Thanks, Melina. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. And I want to remind you that you can come join me on social on Instagram at lowtoxlife or one word, or my personal Instagram uh, at underscore Alex with two X's, Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T. On Facebook, you can find us at Low Tox Life uh, and, of course, lowtoxlife.com. And if you want additional support and community around leading a low-tox life, I can't recommend a better thing to do than to come join us at the Low Tox 
Club for just $49 Australian per year, which is about 29.30 US, about 27 euro and about 25 pounds, you get a stack of club member perks and the benefit of a beautiful private Facebook community. So check out the website, lowtoxlife.com, hit the explore tab and you'll see join the Lotox Club as your very first option there. I hope to see you in there. If not, I will see you in our wider community sometime soon. Thanks again for tuning in.